James Macmillan is well known as a contemporary Catholic musician. James has produced a series of programmes about composers of religious music. Today he considers the life and work of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Right from the start of my life in music, my engagement with Mozart's music was indeed transcendent. I remember the very first LPs that my mum and dad got me when I was discovering music for the first time, and the Mozart works that I first encountered were his clarinet concerto and his clarinet quintet, and I remember the beauty that this composer, this great composer I read about in the Ladybird handbooks um, was able to achieve. Ever since this early exposure to the great works of Mozart, I realised there was something in the beauty of this music that opened up a window, opened a door through the power of music onto something deep, something numinous perhaps, something I didn't quite understand and something that has been worth pursuing as to its significance in music and in life ever since. And perhaps there's something in the nature of this music that leads us to seeing something understanding something more of the human condition. There's something about the mystery of this search that becomes apparent in Mozart. Nothing is, is forceful, it just seems to be the most natural thing in the world that Mozart seems to understand uh, the nature of the divine and speaks of this nature naturally in his music. Mozart is a very interesting place to begin this series where we explore the lives of composers and faith, how faith impacted on their view of the world and more importantly how faith impacted on the music that they wrote. Was Mozart simply that giggling buffoon that we know and love from the Amadeus film? He wrote over 600 pieces of music but only 60 of these were directly religious. He was a devout Catholic, but he was also an active Freemason, which may be hard for some of us to square these days. So in this programme, we are asking, what do we know about his beliefs and his view of God? What were the truths he was searching for in his own mind and in all of his music? My name is George Corbett. I'm a senior lecturer in Theology and the Arts here at in the School of Divinity at the University of St Andrews. 
George, what do you think uh, Mozart's experience of religion and his own faith was while he was a child and growing up? I think from his infancy, his father, Leopold, seemed to have believed that his son was a gift from God, but that um, his son's talent was a special, miraculous gift, which it was his duty, Leopold's duty, to foster, to nurture, and then to share with the world. And so I think right from the beginning with Mozart, there's, there's been this sense that he's a miracle, there's something which connects him to God. And, and certainly Leopold felt that it was his responsibility. I've got a quote here from a letter uh, where he says, if it is ever to be my duty to convince the world of this miracle, it is now when people are ridiculing whatever is called a miracle and denying all miracles. That is why they must be convinced. So I think right from the beginning, he was brought up in a pious, devout Catholic family, but a family and a father like Leopold, who was also aware that the wider world was starting to become more and more sceptical um, towards religion. And somehow Mozart himself might be God's answer to that scepticism. I'm Cliff Eisen. I'm professor of music history at King's College London. Where does uh, a little motet, uh, an introverted and contained and indeed beautiful little motet like Aviverum Corpus uh, fit into this. Did that come about because of an edict? No, this was written for a, a small church in Baden where the uh, music director, a fellow named Stoll, uh, was uh, a friend of Mozart's and uh, Mozart's wife Constanza was taking the cure as she often did at Baden and it appears that on some occasion when Mozart having visited her, Stoll must have asked him to write a little piece for performance because that, that small-scale kind of piece was permissible. captured the essence of the liturgy, especially at that moment in the liturgy, perhaps the most profound, most beautiful, most central moment of the Mass at the reception of, of this sacrament of the Eucharist. Yeah, And again, it's from the heart, isn't it? It's from the faith. It's not kind of saccharine or superficial or popular, but it's deep and, and spiritual. And it's amazing that he wrote that, you know, in his last year of life, it was at Feast of the Corpus Christi, I mean, even the end, and he finished with mortis in examine, you know, this pregustatum, that is a foretaste of eternal happiness, that he wrote that. It's an incredibly personal piece, but it seems to speak to everyone, doesn't it?
it's so highly concentratedly beautiful. Um, towards the end of his life, he seems to have concentrated much more on finding a kind of kernel of an idea and working with that. And I think that that's why the Ave Verum Corpus is on the one hand so still throughout, but on the other hand, at a kind of more micro level, includes all these magnificent dissonances and overlaps. When you listen to that music again, you know that this is someone who's communicating he's not communicating theological ideas sometimes with someone like Messiaen he has a theological idea and he communicates it in music what Mozart communicates is his own devotion his own religious experience of something miraculous something extraordinary and again this is just from a letter that he wrote a year after his marriage but he said for a considerable time before we were married we had always attended Mass and gone to confession and taken communion together, and I found that I never prayed so fervently or confessed and took communion so devotedly as by her side. And so I think you know, that's a very strong words from, from Mozart. This is someone who didn't... It, religion just was, wasn't a kind of institutional practice. This is someone who had a relationship, a personal relationship with God and with the sacraments. And I think when you hear something... That's communicated. It's not only quiet reverence that we hear in Mozart's religious music. Is there something of Mozart's personality that comes out in this ecstatic outpouring of praise? In the Exultati Jubilati, for example, this is music of joyous and radical energy. as a because I, I mean I feel with your music that you're a very different kind of Christian composer in that from quite an early time you're very conscious of of your faith being at the heart of your music and um, being the part of who you are that you're a composer but you are a Christian composer do you think Mozart because I, I almost feel like Mozart isn't thinking right I'm a Christian composer I'm communicating things he's it just kind of just happens for him, or it's less conscious. 
I think you're right. I think um, for the time it would have been less conscious for a Catholic composer living in a profoundly Catholic society, even though it was going through turmoil and evolutionary change. But it would have been something in the water. There would be something Catholic in the water of Salzburg and Vienna in the 18th century, which would have made the expression of Catholicism in music like second nature, like the easiest thing in the world to do. With modernity, of course, comes layer upon layer of historical fight back against not just religion, but the, the established churches and perhaps Catholicism especially. And I'm very aware that it's a very front-brain conscious decision mm -hmm. by the likes of myself, and you've mentioned him already, Olivier Messiaen, um, a 20th century Catholic composer who showed me that it was possible to be a Catholic composer in the 21st century, that it was possible to write of, of these deep truths or to reflect something of the, the theology of these truths in a time of great scepticism and indeed hostility in some cases.
John Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God spots, and today he tells us to eat tea leaves. See my girlfriend? She's just like my dad. No, honest. She's bald, over 70, and no, I'm joking. She's not over 70. She does something my dad used to do, apart from wallop me very hard. When she gets to the bottom of a cup of tea, she's quite happy to eat the tea leaves. Yup. So hey, we were made for each other, because I do that too. See, isn't God good? And before you all go, don't knock it till you've tried it. Some of the folk listening to this are currently saying, and what's wrong with eating the tea leaves? I do it. Well, there's a mass confession going on here. But the point is, sometimes God asks you to wash feet, turn the other cheek, give away all your money, love the unlovable. Don't knock it till you've tried it. And don't be surprised at the number of people who do it day in and day out with no ill effects. May you be infused with blessings today. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 141. It's followed by the Cherubic Hymn by Mikhail Galinka, sung by the choir of Clare College, Cambridge, conducted by Graham Ross. Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me, and it shall be a kindness, and let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. For yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord. In thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, whilst that I withal escape.
Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. 
Today he continues the story of God's choice of Moses as leader of the people of Israel. I thought it would be easier somehow and that things would just happen as God said they would. After all, God said from the burning bush, Moses, Moses, he called me by name. Then he gave me instructions as to what I was to do and that he would be with me to liberate the Hebrew slaves from the tyrannical Egyptians. In my thinking, it should have gone on without a hitch. But things are not easier. In fact, I think I've just made things worse. Okay, I'll back up and tell the story from the time I told my father-in-law Jethro of my meeting with God. I had resolved to return to the land of Egypt in obedience to God's command. When I was well on the way, suddenly his divine presence was before me, and I knew he wanted to kill me. I didn't know why or what to do when my wife turned quickly to our son and cut off his foreskin. When she did that, God relented and all was restored to normal, if you can call any of this normal. You see, the command of the Lord to Abraham was to circumcise his son on the eighth day, and God wanted me to do the same. It's a kind of identifying feature for us Hebrews. It was still difficult to think of myself as truly one of them. And he wanted me to be obedient to him, and I suppose fully identify myself and my family with them. Anyway, I'm thankful that my wife had the presence of mind to do that. She actually saved my life. As we neared the borders of Egypt, I saw a familiar figure walking towards me to meet me and my family. This was Aaron, who I'd seen in Egypt amongst the slaves. He was the one the Lord said would speak to me, to Pharaoh, but I'd since learned that he was in fact my natural brother. It was easy to communicate with him like brothers should. I told him all that God was planning with regards to liberating the Hebrew slaves. So as we entered the land, Aaron assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. That was their ancestor Jacob's name given by God. And they believed what I told them. They bowed down and worshipped God, thanking him for noticing their harsh servitude. At that point, I was sure of a quick and painless ending to the situation. After all, if it was God who commanded it and his power was with me, how could the results be any different? So I went to Pharaoh and declared, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But he replied with typical arrogance, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. We repeated our quest, saying, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise he will fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But Pharaoh's reply was swift and without nuance. Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. On the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen saying, you are to no longer give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it. Because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Ha! Let the labor be heavier on the men. And let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. So, when our foreman went the following week to report the quota of bricks that had been made, 
obviously there were less than before because we could no longer use straw as a filler for them. Pharaoh's construction overseers laid hands on those foremen and had them beaten, threatening them with more of the same if next week's quota wasn't better. The leaders of our people were angry at me, saying, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, at that point, I simply went to the Lord and poured out my heart, praying, O oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me, ever since I came to Pharaoh, to speak in your name? He has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Well, I'd expected some difficulties, because I'm not naive. Everywhere you find people, you'll find problems. It's not cynical, it's just the truth. However, I thought my own people would support me. After all, I came from God to liberate them, and it was his idea. I expected hostility from Pharaoh, but not from them. What did I do after this? I went back to the source, to God, and I'll tell you that part of the story the next time we meet up. This comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 4 and 5 in the Bible. And your loving kindness flows to all. 